0: coming up on the scott thompson home show the olympic torch has been lit will anybody see it what is going on in the u.s as now even republicans are telling americans to get vaccinated the head of canada's vaccine rollout is fighting for his career it's all coming up today on the scott thompson show on 900 chml
1: i'm curtis thompson scott's son olympics start today in tokyo japan to celebrate i have stuffed my used mask into the end of an empty paper towel roll and lit it ablaze i will now march it's the scott thompson home show
0: here's scott thompson hey watch that go you don't want to set the You march into the, uh, you march outside with that, my friend. You're gonna set the smoke detectors off in here. Uh, man, oh man. Uh, well, at least he's getting in the spirit, right? Uh, stop, drop, and roll! All right, let's uh, get to uh, the big story of the day, which is the Tokyo Olympics now underway. And of course, lots of issues in regard to uh, the Olympics over and above the Games itself. But when you think about it, uh, in past experiences, there usually is something prior to the Games uh, that always takes our attention before it all begins. I'm not sure anything quite as big as COVID-19. But uh, uh, make sure you're uh, taking a peek at uh, Steve Milton's uh, column in today's Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now steve thanks for the time hope you're doing well
2: all right scott you sure got time for me with all that stuff you got going later
0: today? i know exactly that's we've a, always got time for you steve man we've name, always right? got time
2: yeah, all right we're here okay
0: exactly so uh you've seen a few of these uh uh and reported on them for for a while it's certainly not your first rodeo obviously no. not the same sort of games that we've been used to but what stands out uh for you as we go through opening day this compared to others
2: well yeah compared to many others uh the first thing stands out is I'm not there uh, and and I'm I'm often there I haven't been yeah. in one for a little while yet but but uh second of all it 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 and I didn't didn't want to prejudge it but I think I did um it it just seemed hollow you know like with, the, with it it wasn't quite the same and there's nothing like athletes marching into the stadium to the thunderous applause especially mm. in two cases the home team uh, when they come in, that, that doesn't matter where you are. You could be in a, you could be in Russia, you could be in China, you could be in France, you could be anywhere, you could be in Canada. Uh, and then that, it just, you've never heard anything like it. And, and it really makes you feel terrific. And it translates to the TV broadcast, I'm sure, because I've seen a few on the TV as well where that happens. But the secondly, and, and more personally for all of us, is when Canada comes in. And you see them all. You know, you can see the 200 of them and they're dancing and jumping and, 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 you know, this time you didn't have the home, you know, there were nobody, there was nobody in the stadium to really respond, to, uh, uh, when Japan, I only was able to watch it before I came down here to the stadium to work on the Tie Cats and the Forge. Uh, the, uh, I was only able to see sort of the march-ins and, and that's always my favorite part anyways. And and uh, when Canada came in, you got that. You're still always going to get that flutter. But again, you didn't. I mean, there was 30 of them. Not not how many people. They've got 371. Down to 370 athletes there. And and just for various reasons, uh, quarantines uh, for late arrivals. Uh, lots of competition uh, uh, tomorrow and some going on today. So they those people weren't able to be in there. And so it it just had a it had a ring of hollowness to me. It reminded me a lot of watching a lot of the sports we watched a year ago in uh, professional. And- yeah. Yeah. Uh, didn't you get
0: that kind of same feeling? You know, that, that's exactly where I was going with my next question, Steve, is that, you know, how does this compare to uh, what we've seen in the last year, whether it, whatever sport it is, playing to uh, empty stadiums? Uh, you know, again, but with the Olympics being such a special occasion, uh, you'd yeah. think that there's got to be a bit more of an impact there. Plus, the opening ceremony is a little bit different than the competition. I mean, because you certainly do hear the crowd, you know, during the opening ceremonies. What about that? versus the actual competition are they going to miss that crowd being there when they are competing
2: uh, oh for sure I, I i think now these are very much like uh, uh olympic athletes especially from the top you know if you go down the top 20 in each field it's it, there are some smaller countries that's not the same but they're pretty well pros right and and in, in the sense that they do only uh, they only pursue their athletic careers. They're working full time at it, whether they make any money at it or not. It's a full time dedication. It's, it's really something. So the focus is incredible. And remembering, they've had to sort of adjust everything uh, because of the cancellation or postponement last year, right? So they had to, to to re jig their schedule up. And I, I think you might see some effect of uh, that. I don't think you'll see as much the effect of no crowd. Uh, you will see that in certain events. I think you'd see that in in in, in things like uh, a, a longer distance runs inside the large stadium, where you're trying to cap mm-hmm. somebody. Let's say anything from the 800 or over uh, in, in track and field and in, in athletics. Uh, you the pool, the pool is noticeable if you're there, but I'm not so sure in the water. You don't really. You can only yeah. feel the surge. I've talked to swimmers about that. They can feel the surge inside the water, but they can't hear. They got caps on and they're so focused. The focus is so strong among a world's elite athletes. Even people who nearly make the Olympic team are that way, too. They are so used to shutting things out, Scott, and and, and uh, that I think that the performances will still be good. It's different, and I'm glad you mentioned it, than, than the other sporting events we saw, because no matter how much you compare other things that we saw, let's say the NBA in the bubble or all that baseball mm-hmm. that was played last year in front of no fans, not the same. Yeah, not I would agree show. with that. It's way yeah. smaller. The, the, those sports, you know, it was all, all apologies to North American fans, way smaller, way smaller. Uh, so what, because, about,
0: what about vaccination and athletes? Uh, you know, we heard some issues around uh, an American swimmer who is not vaccinated. Yeah. How concerned are you about outbreaks during, this, during these games? Totally.
2: I, there's only one reason. Like, I, I'm against these games having been held. Except for this, the athletes. You know, I was still, you know, covering. Uh, I wasn't going yet. I didn't start going to Olympics till '84, but in '80, when the boycott, I was covering several uh, Olympians for my hometown paper at the time, which was Aurelia. and I, and then, and also all the figure skaters. I was international. Uh, they, they, they went, and the summer athletes were unable to go, and I saw the devastation that it had on them, and on. Really, you one shot this, right? You, you know, I, I'd say what thirty, forty percent of the people maybe get a second Olympics, uh, but given the way they are, and that, that it, you know, it depends where you are in the cycle of your time. That it's very different. If this was a twenty-two year old, than if you're twenty-six, uh, and you know, because that chances are that's your your last Olympic chance. So I like the idea that that at least those Olympians got a chance. But that is the only reason I'm very worried about this. I, I can't imagine that in any other situation would you let a Would would you let the world's biggest sales meeting be held? Would yeah. you let the world's biggest movie festival be held in there at this time, with all of that going on? I don't think so. Uh,
0: obviously, there's a lot of blowback in Japan, and you know, a, a, as we've chatted before with other people, I get, you know, there's always a contingent in any city who's unhappy that the games are there. Uh, but I think it's like eighty percent don't want it being held uh, yeah. in Japan. Does that does that even enter into? Does that go beyond the gates uh, of Olympic stadiums?
2: You mean during the two weeks? Yeah, uh, you know it's going to be. Hard. It's hard for me to tell because I'm not there. Uh, you know, one of the reasons I, the only reason I would have liked to go, I think, is to compare it. You yeah. know, what's this like comparative? Because we never had anything like this. Yeah. You know, not at the Olympics. You know, we've had other things, we've had other worries. I mean, Russia was a big worry with all the, uh, with what they call the Black Widow things going on at the time. There was a lot of threat of terrorism. I was there in the first one after nine eleven, which they had the no fly zone for about five hundred miles around uh, Salt Lake, and you know there was incredible things there. But this is this is quite different, and and uh, you know, like a, the. <sighs> Again, I want to emphasize that I'm glad the athletes are getting a chance. It's The only reason I, I, I'm in any way unhappy isn't a word, but at least satisfied that the games are going to be held because they're going to be held anyways. Uh, I don't know that. We'll see what happens. Uh, chances are people get pretty excited. You know, what happens if, if uh, Japanese, uh, I started going to Japan. I've only been there three times for a sporting events, but there was a big change in the way I would, from the first one I went to, which was 85, until the last one I think was around 2000 uh, event that I was in Japan and the way that the spectators, uh, treated their athletes, you has be very, very polite. You know, all of those sort of, uh, hmm. uh, traditional ways we view, uh, uh from the outside of that society were, were present, not now. They are yeah. athletes are like musicians there have become kind of rock stars. So what happens if two or three of them, win hmm. win, win win some gold medals, they spill onto the streets, who's bringing in what, uh, I mean, most of the time in the bubbles where there were any problems in sport, it came from the outside, whether it a workers or family member or something like that. So so uh, you, yeah, I, I, I think people will, now that they've said no people can come into the stadium, that was a big move. It was a hard one for them to make. Yeah. There's no way they could have controlled anything, Scott. All the restaurants would have been feel filled. I don't care how much they herded people on back, right back onto trains and everything. The trains would have been transmission spots back. then, so it's going to be less of that. I mean, I think given the fact that they were absolutely determined and the IOC was never letting this go. Don't ever think that this was not going to happen. It just got, when was it going to happen? Uh, you know, they, they could not afford not to have an Olympics. The continuity is very, very important. Well you saw that with the manner in which, uh, we saw it locally here, the manner in which, um, the uh, International uh, Commonwealth Games Federation yeah. uh, really wanted to have a 26/ 27 games because the continuity so that you can get to 2030 and it yeah. you know now 2030 is a good product. well there's the same thing with the Olympics only times a thousand you know
1: they need so let,
0: continuity. let's talk about Team Canada what can yeah. we expect what should we be looking for this year
1: well you
2: know, obviously, you're gonna you're gonna watch the grass. You're gonna you're gonna watch our our, our swimmers, uh, particularly females. I think you got to watch uh, Warner uh, in in the uh, uh, in the uh, decathlon. Uh, you know, he might be. Uh, and I think the, there's always a sleeper. You know, you could, and one of those could be. And, and I, I don't want to call her a sleeper, but one of them could be one of ours, and, and that's uh, Heather Bantley and and mm-hmm. and and uh, perhaps Mackenzie Hughes, and and. Uh, if If elena Sharp can elena Sharp can get her i mean she's struggled with putting and and kind of a kind of a mental approach, but she feels she's on the right track and it's a it's you know it's one day or sorry it's four days you know either of those golfers might you know sneak onto the podium I think we're looking i think inside estimates say twenty one and they they is the number and they're usually pretty close within one or two twenty one medals and you might see three or four goals and you know depends if somebody goes higher or lower than, than, uh, than you, than you might anticipate, you know? So we don't, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, maybe key and nurse too, maybe the basketball team, you know, the, the women's basketball team, they're capable, you know, if they get the right stuff going there, I think we can watch that. I'll be keeping my eyes on the women's soccer team too. I don't think they're expected to medal, but, uh, and you know, they've had a coaching change and a velocity change and, uh, for anybody who was here during the 2015 Pan Am Games, a lot of those women were, were on the Canadian team here as, as quite young players uh, in that Tim Hortons field in 2015. So, uh, you know, keep my eyes a little bit on that. I don't know, you, Did you find it hard that when it's, you know, half the stuff's at 5 in the morning?
0: <laughs> well, you know, hasn't that always been the case with Olympics in some form? You know, you either got to get up early, you got to stay up late, whatever. Uh, well, you know. sure, they,
2: de- they become a drug that way, but what, what yeah. happens is when they're all pretty early, now, as as lucky like some of those morning events, like golf, which starts at nine in the morning, then well, we're going to get that at uh, that's minus thirteen, so we're going to get that six thirty seven at least the first few holes, right? Those kinds of things. Yeah, but generally, yeah. the primetime show, NBC, is guilty of this, anyways, packaging things up, and you wouldn't know there's anybody yeah. else in it besides Americans. But CBC will have to do the same thing too because you you it gets this it almost gets a pre scripted look because you know most of us that care already know what happened, and and you know if there's a big one, we're going to tune in for it uh, and a lot of it'll be you know obviously most of it won't be live in the prime time hours but here's the thing that concerned me and i think you mentioned something we wrote today in the spec about it is is that uh, there are three three games in that time zone roughly in a row right we just we just had uh, south korea we've got japan and then we're going to beijing in six months or seven months yeah really you know, and, and so you kind of that was the whole point of what I wrote today. I think a lot of us are suffering from Olympic detachment, given all of the, well, the postponement, given all of the scandals, given all of the, you know, the stuff that's being, you know, bared about the, uh, IOC and which we already knew, but it's really like most things in the pandemic have been multiplied. Things that were already there have been multiplied and brought much more yeah. into the open. And that's happening in all areas of life. And I think we've had a bit of Olympic uh, disengagement. In fact, I heard that I got that sort of idea from one of the, one of the people who works at the stadium here had mentioned that that's that's how he felt that's where the athletes come in steve milton, steve milton with us
0: steve milton with us, journalist for your hamilton spectator make sure you read all of steve's stuff uh, in the spec as he uh, reports on the tokyo olympics certainly a different one this time out steve as always right. thanks so much for the time be well all right scott uh, something that's fascinating and, and perhaps quite a bit of difference between Canada and the United States, although lots of people uh, politically are trying to draw a parallel is uh, obviously the vaccine rates in Canada versus the vaccine rates uh, in the United States. The United States started uh, way ahead of us, as did the UK, uh, but unfortunately didn't drive it home over the finish line and kind of uh, yeah, leveled out, planed out at about uh, 50% of their, of their you <laughs> Uh, people vaccinated whereas with canada we started late but you know whether it's supply and demand everybody wants it and um, boom we're uh we have astronomical rates when you think about it now 80 percent of us uh with the first dose uh around 60 with the second which is which is pretty phenomenal uh and now what we're seeing and it's bizarre uh because at times you watch the us and they've been ahead of us uh and a lot of the time they've been behind us and uh i, I think we're seeing this again uh now as as uh, we're starting to see the variant spike in the United States. And that's uh, largely in uh, people who have not been vaccinated. They've had a hard time getting their rates up over uh, 52, 53 percent and such. And now we even have prominent members of the Republican Party Urging uh, Americans to get their COVID nine va- uh, COVID-19 vaccination, which is odd because, unlike Canada in America, it's very divisive by politics. Uh, and they say, like, a lot on the right don't necessarily want it, uh, the vaccination, whereas those on the left do. Uh, and we had political parties: one political party saying uh, we got to, you know, get vaccinated; the other political party, Republicans, saying uh, at times this is all a hoax and you don't need to wear masks, and 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 nobody's encouraging vaccination. That's all changed. A difference in Canada, obviously, uh, all of the major parties, the political parties, are all telling you the same thing on vaccination, and that's to get get it as soon as possible. So it's certainly a lot less political, and the hesitancy uh, certainly crosses uh, the political spectrum in Canada, whereas in the United States, it seems to be incredibly uh, divisive. But now we're seeing Republican Party uh, officials now (laughs) change their tone. Let's bring in Jennifer Johnson, Washington correspondent with Global news and is with us now jennifer thanks for the time i hope you're well
1: thank you thanks for having me
0: you know it was odd uh, yesterday jennifer i'm watching uh i'm watching cnn and i hadn't watched it for a while and my son was with me and they were they were doing uh coverage of of covid19 and he just right out of the blue he said these guys are nuts Uh, And the point that I think he was making was listening to that broadcast was like listening to one of ours, uh, you know, about three to six months ago. It's amazing how this story has changed between Canada and the United States over the course of this pandemic. Well,
1: that's right. I mean, we started vaccinating people way earlier than Canada did. And yet your numbers are higher, you know, higher than ours. And that's because, you know, America came out of the gate fast. But there are still millions of people who refuse to get vaccinated, especially in states in the South and the Midwest. And so the numbers are really going through the roof again. We're getting a thousand new cases an hour uh, of COVID-19 here in America now. And the numbers are jumping 50 percent from week to week. And hospitalization rates are up and deaths are up and ICU rates are up. And, it, and it's just, you know, it's really mind boggling that we're back in this place.
0: Uh, Now, as far as uh, it it seemed politically, you know, this was very much divided politically as it was through science. What what are we seeing and why are we seeing the change in certain members of the Republican Party? It seems bizarre that they seem to be changing their tune. Is that accurate?
1: Well, it is accurate. I mean, you know, former President Trump sort of started this whole situation when he, you know, at, at first called it a hoax and then you know, not as bad, you know, it's just, it's not as bad as the flu, or it's just like having the flu. Um, and, and, you know, would downplay, you know, the risk of COVID-19. And so many Republican governors and leaders followed with him. But the problem is, now they're changing their tune, because, again, like in Florida, leading the country again in hospitalization rates. And it's coming at a time when hospitals are traditionally, you know, kind of in a slow period. They, you know, you don't have the flu. It's not the middle of the winter when the elderly are getting sick. But but now they're swamped. They're swamped with people. They're swamped with sick people. The ICU beds are swamped. So a lot of the Republican leaders, including Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, are coming out and saying, "Let's get vaccinated because America cannot put this pandemic behind it. We keep having problems. And and if if America, if if the country keeps getting sick." There's going to be more mask mandates, like you've just seen in L.A. County again. And that traditionally keeps people away out of businesses, out of stores, out of crowds. And that hurts restaurants. It hurts malls. It hurts, you know, strip malls, mom and pop shops. So it's just not a good plan going forward to keep saying you don't have to get vaccinated.
0: How is the Republican base reacting to this change of tone?
1: Well, I mean, it depends on the day. I mean, the Biden administration wanted to go door to door in parts of Georgia to try to encourage people to get vaccinated, send health officials out to talk to people and say, you know, why aren't you getting it? And this is how we can do it. And, you know, this is the center. It's nearby your house. But then Georgia threatened to sue. And so it depends on the state. I mean, some of the states, some of the state leaders are are urging people to get vaccinated. Others are being very passive about it. But as I said, the problem is you've got hospitalization rates like in Missouri, Nevada, Alabama. Uh, Alabama's got 34% of its population fully vaccinated, and now it's out of hospital beds in certain parts, as is Missouri, as is Nevada. So, you know, it depends on the state. And I, in, in my opinion, the message isn't strong enough because, you know, people are getting sick. And 99% of the people who are in a hospital and 99% of the deaths now are from people who are unvaccinated and 83% of those people have the Delta variant. So it has been shown that the vaccines work, but it's, you know, we're still not convincing tens of millions of people.
0: And some Republicans are almost positioning uh, this as if your health uh, and, and I guess, yeah, you know, obviously, they're right. Your health records are a secret. Like, yeah, of course, I'm vaccinated, even though they're sort of pushing the message that they are and even saying, well, how ma- How do we know how many uh, Democrats have been vaccinated? uh have been vaccinated uh, what about the way in which they're doing it the approach in which they are using uh i mean should it be like mitch mcconnell where they just come out and say get vaccinated uh, you know i was even thinking donald trump apparently has been vaccinated has he you know had a position on this or even said hey maybe you should get vaccinated
1: no i mean for the most part the other than mitch mcconnell most of the republicans are you know they just remain quiet about it and you know, it, it, I think Mitch McConnell did the, the country a great service by saying, you have, you know, you need to get vaccinated. Vaccines are working. Vaccines are saving lives. But, you know, in terms of Donald Trump, you know, there's there have been reports, particularly uh, pretty long one recently in The Washington Post, describing the extraordinary measures that were taken to keep Donald Trump alive when he had COVID-19. And yet, you know, he came out and and, and downplayed it. Now, yes, I was sick. It was like the worst flu I ever had. But so, you know, the the Republicans do need, in my opinion, to be more, have a stronger collective measure, uh, message, excuse me, uh, about getting vaccinated. But, you know, you're also dealing with a lot of misinformation uh, on social media. I mean, Facebook has tried to crack down on it and other social media platforms. But people still point to the fact there's still people on uh, TikTok, Facebook saying, you know, look, now I'm magnetic, magnetic since I got the COVID-19 <laughs> vaccine or, you know, you know, you've seen them. They're yeah. they're not based on science, but that's, you know, that's what the Biden administration is dealing with. And the president has uh, gone after Facebook over some of this stuff and they're trying to work their algorithms. So these things don't pop up and it's still easy to see them. And, um, you know, it's just it's just a losing battle. But this country cannot get out of this pandemic if more people don't get vaccinated. That's the bottom line.
0: Uh, you said a losing battle. It, it appears this could get worse before it gets better, unless the vaccination rates uh, greatly turn around. How will that position the Republicans? Will they have to keep uh, sidestepping on this? I mean, sooner or later, uh, the the hospital rates don't lie, and that and that's you know that was the interesting thing here up in Canada too. Is a lot of people who uh, didn't believe in everything were saying, well, look how many people die. It's not that many people dying, and it was very hard to convince the public. It, it wasn't necessarily about how many, not only how many people passed away, which is obviously uh, I- extremely uh, important in the discussion, but also how it clogs up the hospital system, prevents other surgeries from going on and, and to the point where that starts affecting the health of, uh, of people. Are, are Americans at that point now where they realize it's less about the death rate and more about what it's doing to the hospital system?
1: I mean, the death rate was really high in America, so I think people are aware that that COVID-19 can kill you. The hospitals, you know, it apparently just falls on deaf ears for many people because the federal health officials, the federal doctors, the local doctors, the CEOs of medical systems have all come out, particularly in the last couple of weeks, saying we're overwhelmed, we're getting overwhelmed again. Uh, we, you know, we don't have any ICU beds or we're running out of ICU beds, but it hasn't really led to an uptick in new vaccinations. Whether or not this becomes a campaign rally in 2022 in the midterm elections, I mean, it's hard to say because people who are not going to get vaccinated are entrenched in their beliefs. And people who are, are vaccinated, you know, are incredulous as to why people won't do it. So there's a great divide And I think that, you know, I I just don't see going forward how that's going to change very much because the messaging hasn't changed and yet people still aren't getting vaccinated. And and, and to your point that it's only going to get it worse, it's going to get worse. These vaccines that we all had in, in March are going to become less and less effective. And if people don't get the boosters or, you know, refuse to even get their first shot, this situation will get worse. And you know, we've we've come out of, um, you know, a winter where people were inside and people, if they were outside, they, they were masked up. So people weren't exposed to the flu, so it's likely flu rates are going to be worse. Uh, pneumonia rates are going to be higher. So, you know, uh, who knows what's going to happen in the fall and the winter. But I don't, I'm not a doctor, but I don't think it's going to be good.
0: Jennifer Johnson with us, Washington correspondent with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. Prominent members of the Republican Party urging Americans to get their vaccination. Jennifer, thanks so much for the time. Be well.
1: Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me.
0: Quick break here. More on this when we return. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML, talking about uh, COVID-19 and the situation in the United States and how the messaging uh, is changing. And it was very bizarre, as I was saying to our previous guests, who, after I said that, I realized didn't, you know, I realized she was an American and probably wasn't the most. Uh, appropriate thing to say uh in an interview but it was hilarious we were we flipped through CNN uh, yesterday afternoon after the show and uh they're doing their thing on on COVID-19 and my 14 year old just who I don't even think he's paying attention he's like on his device and then he turns to me and he goes these guys are nuts uh and, and you know they're having the big debate about COVID-19, and, you know, we were there, it seems, six months ago. But it's bizarre how one country has taken off ahead of the other, then the other one catches up, and then uh, bizarre how the two nations end up where they are. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert. He's with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. All right. Uh, So it's certainly a different place in the, a different situation in the United States than it is in Canada. In the sense that in Canada, uh, it's certainly not political. uh, In the sense that all of the leaders of all of the political parties are telling us to get a vaccination as soon as we can. That not the case in the United States, where one side saying at one point it was all a hoax, and the other side saying uh, we should be get, uh, we should uh, be moving on this. How do you, how do you change? We're we're talking about mixed messaging all the time, doctor. How do you change uh, mid? pandemic and, and and sort of go from denial to, okay, we should do this and, and get people to buy in. How difficult is that going to be for them?
3: It's very difficult, Scott, because I think what ends up happening is that the public loses trust in the political party's ideologies. And So when a political party, in this case in the U.S., Republicans were very strong in in, in putting forward messaging that are anti-vaccines, anti-science in some respect, it becomes difficult for them now to backtrack and say, uh, you know that you know we should get vaccinated and i think part of the reason that the republicans notable republicans in the u.s are coming forward and saying this is because the delta variant has actually taken a massive toll on the country and they're suffering through what what was bound to be another catastrophe when it comes to covid19 the u.s way of handling it they hit a plateau with a number of vaccinations the people who were wanting to get vaccines uh, coupled with the idea that this variant that's now, you know, uh, taken over their entire country and has increased their hospitalizations rates to alarming rates and numbers, have caused the Republicans to actually step forward and say, "You need to get vaccinated because otherwise, we're going back to a full shutdown."
0: Uh, should we be opening borders to the United States with all of this going on?
3: So, as far as we know, that it's actually, it seems that the, the the decision to either open or close the U.S. border it's very closely intertwined with the Biden administration. And so the signals we're receiving is that the Biden administration is the one that's not actually in favor of opening the borders. So that decision is, is one that's going to be difficult to navigate. I think that with the increasing numbers of cases in the U.S., it's probably not going to, uh, even if we do decide to open up the borders, it probably won't be open up for long. Because if the numbers continue to increase the way they are, that's going to be really alarming for us here in Canada.
0: Do you think, and we remember, we remember this very vividly in Canada, with ICUs filling up, do you think that's enough incentive for to, to push them over the hump and get them going?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's multiple factors. I mean, the U.S. also plays out very differently than Canada in the sense that, you know, Canadians, no matter what political party uh, you belong to, we tend to overall uh, favor science and favor evidence. And we've also, I think, I've said this before on your show, you know we're one of the countries in the world that had the longest sort of lockdowns, and I think in a form, in a way, it punished us in a good way. If that makes any sense, it sort of signaled to us that mm-hmm. you know if you want to get out of this lockdown, vaccine is the way out, and that messaging was reinforced throughout our country in the past year and a half. So when the vaccines did become available, a lot of us rushed and were frantically trying to get a hold on a vaccine, even if you were skeptical about getting it. You were more likely to get it because you were just fed up with the lockdown that wasn't the same case in the u.s it played out very differently they they went through waves of lockdowns and some cities like miami and others didn't have the lockdowns we had here and so i think that 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 also played a role in how people were gonna go get vaccinated or not in the u.s and what they're suffering from now i mean they've called it in the u.s the pandemic of the unvaccinated now Mm. for a reason the majority of the cases in the u.s are people who are not getting vaccinated
0: uh obviously in the united states vaccine is plentiful where do you see this going in the next few months i mean hopefully we see us here in canada becoming fully vaccinated and certainly by the fall and going into uh, the winter and next year we're hoping i mean we're you're, you're going to see a surge in, in in september of some sort we we i think we're ready for that we're aware of that but it looks pretty good for us where, where do you see the the states in the next couple of months with this
3: well, if they go the way they're going right now, not very good. And we've alarmed about this. I mean, I remember distinctively talking in your show maybe a month and a half ago where I, I flagged that this is potentially going to happen to the U.S. just by observing the data on the number of vaccinations, Scott. And you and I have always discussed about how they were hitting a plateau in the U.S. and how what that means in terms of policy implications. Well, one such implication is one we're seeing right now is that their case numbers are are so high. Their variant is taking a toll on their country. People are not getting vaccinated at the rate that the Biden administration was hoping they would. They're trying to mobilize. They started with social media influencers. They started with young actresses and actors to try to get the younger generation to get vaccinated. And now they're trying to utilize Republicans to get that sort of big surge and more people getting vaccinated. I think that's going to be a time to tell, but it doesn't look positive right now for the U.S. unless people start getting vaccinated in larger numbers throughout the country.
0: Dr. Ahmad Khalid with his health policy expert, talking about the United States and, uh, boy, how the tables have turned all of a sudden. Uh, doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. And same to you. Thank you, Scott. The commentary is coming up. Many partisan Canadians have tried to link those that are unvaccinated as being on the right. And although that may be the case in the United States, there is nothing here to suggest any vaxxers have any political preference. You will find them on both the extreme left and extreme right. U.S. COVID-19 guru Dr. Anthony Fauci echoed this when was asked why Canada now has a higher vaccination rate than the U.S. He said, quote, it's because in Canada you don't have that divisiveness of people not wanting to get vaccinated in many aspects on the basis of their ideology and political persuasion. As with most issues in the US, it's about the left or the right. One party telling you to get vaccinated, and at one point the other saying it was all a hoax. That simply is not the case in Canada, where every single political party is preaching the same message on vaccination. Get the jab now. It's funny how many of those same Canadians who think we are better than the Americans... Are actually the same ones that are copying one of their most damaging traits, trying to divide by team instead of uniting for the cause. I'm Scott Thompson. All right, as we wind down uh, this pandemic, and more, boy, I hope that's the case. Maybe, uh, you know, I don't want to jinx anything here, but obviously, Canada uh, doing a fabulous job 80% uh, with the first dose, 60% with the second dose. Those are leading numbers in the world uh, considering especially we started so late uh, with mass vaccination not really coming into this country till about May so uh, lots of reasons to pat yourself uh, on the back or is it uh, fascinating how the discussion has moved from uh, you know where can I get a vaccine how can I book one when can I did it, did it, did it to do you have one Uh, Are you getting one? Why don't you have one? And, uh, man, it's been discussions at uh, workplaces, within families, all over social media, uh, and it's created some angst and some separation. Uh, Let's talk about that and all things uh, psychological when it comes to the uh, back end of a uh, global pandemic. Steve Jordans is with us, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, and with us now. Steve, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well. Thank you, Scott. Great to be with you again. When the vaccines came in, everybody seemed to be pretty excited, like, say, yeah. May, June, July, when it's, oh, man, look at this. Now I can get one. Now, da, 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 da. And now it, it seems that, I don't know, I, maybe it's, it's a post-pandemic thing. Are we happy or are we cranky right now?
4: Well, I, I mean, I think those people who really were excited and really want mostly are double-vaxxed by now, or at least on, on their path to it. So, you know, it's not that they've lost their enthusiasm or or belief that this is the right path to go and that it's a path to safety. And in fact, as one of them, I've never felt this safe in the last year and a half as as I feel right now. Uh, Of course, the only thing, the only fly in our soup, as it were, are the people who are not getting the vaccine and the disease ripping through them and potentially mutating into something that can take away the safety for those of us who are, are there now. So to the extent, you know, I have any fear or worry left, that's it. Um, but yeah, so now we're down to these people who either for convenience sake or, or, or because they're staunch anti-vaxxers, just don't want to take that step. Um, And it's a tricky situation to be in because of how much we dig in our heels on both sides of this issue.
0: Uh, and it seems to be quite different, a quite different discussion, the discussion of hesitancy in Canada than it does in the United States. And that's obviously due to politics. And many have tried to compare us to them saying, you know, it's only the right wing that's not getting uh, vaccinated and all this sort of thing. Uh, and I think that's valid in the United States where, right. you know, at one point the Republicans, uh, you know, they, they were saying the whole thing's a hoax. Well, uh, the Democrats are trying to tell you to get vaccinated. Whereas in Canada, every single political party, no matter what your stripe, they they all said, go out and get vaccinated as quick as you can. So it was certainly much less uh, political uh, up here than it was down there. But it's mm-hmm. amazing how we try to categorize who is getting it and who isn't, even if it's gender, even if it's education, even if it's e- uh, ethnicity, uh, because it seems that in Canada anyway, it's right the way across the board.
4: Yeah, I mean, we there, we have this notion in psychology called that the common enemy is the way, the ultimate way to bring people together and to actually, you know, form connections. And that's if if they have some common enemy that um, they have to defeat together. And to a large extent, this virus has been the perfect common enemy. And for eighty percent of us. You know, it has done exactly that. Um, So, the question, you know, we we kind of, when we tell these common enemy stories, the usual notion is that, you know, everybody recognizes the enemy uh, and everybody wants to work together to to defeat it. But what we have are um, some people who, you know, I I always want to say it's not the 20%. I think there's maybe 10% who just don't recognize the enemy. They don't believe it's it's what what we say it is or, or what. You know, everybody around the planet with any expertise says it is. Um, and and that puts them in a different camp. You know, that's the way there's this notion in psychology called cognitive dissonance, where people don't like to hold beliefs that, that contradict each other. It makes them uncomfortable. And they have to find some way of, of resolving that. And so if you really believe the vaccine is dangerous in some way, um, Well, the virus is dangerous in some way. And so your only way to justify not getting the vaccine is to essentially convince yourself that the vaccine is more dangerous than the virus. And, you know, for most of us who've looked at the data, the mental gymnastics you have to do to do that, to actually convince yourself that it's more dangerous, especially than the Delta variant, seems amazing. But once people have started down a route, once they've got their foot in the door of the anti-vax, then things like confirmation biases and other things make it really hard for them to reverse course. Uh, and, and I wonder right now if there aren't a lot of anti-vaxxers who are starting to you know, see the trends that, it, that they are in the, the crosshairs now of the virus. You know, they are the ones that are, that are catching it now. Um, will that be enough you know, when it comes into their home, when it comes into their social circles, for them to say, okay, maybe this virus is dangerous too, uh, and maybe it's even more dangerous?
0: I, How do you I kind ex- of hope that. How do you explain that this sort of, uh, uh, crosses all spectrums when it comes mm-hmm. to hesitancy? Because again, it, it, you know, it, it's, it's easy, especially in the South, you know, uh, you know, only those in the Ozarks aren't, in, you know, interested in the yeah. vaccine. It's, it's the, you know, it's the dumb South sort of thing, uh, the Republican thing. Um, but I've been really surprised, Steve, and, and, you know, uh, the majority, well, I don't know anybody from a personal friend perspective, uh, per se, that isn't vaccinated. But I do know people who aren't, and I have been surprised. It isn't that stereotype. It's healthcare profession. It's teachers. Mm. I'm surprised at the people who are not vaccinated and who stand this way i mean i i had the discussion on the air uh, about uh a registered massage therapist that i've had for like 20 years and nope not into it not and i'm thinking oh my goodness i'm in a healthcare situation here and i feel vulnerable so i'm amazed at those because the stereotypes of those that are that are anti-vaxxers i don't think there's truth to that i think this crosses all walks of life is that accurate well,
4: you know, a lot. So the first thing I think we all have to remember is the, the anti-vax movement and even the QAnon kind of vibe was sort of adopted or co-opted by the Republicans to some extent. It, it predates them. And then certainly in the in the America, they've sort of you know totally politicized a lot of that stuff. But a lot of the anti-vax movement um, in Canada started with people concerned about big pharma um, and, and they kind of came at it t- generally in a non-political you know, before all of this happened. Uh, and so I think there is in the, in a lot of places a foothold of people who you know it's it's the internet the internet reaches everywhere yeah. so if you are drawn especially to these stories you know they they really play on really large scale fear paranoia you're being controlled by some you know higher force and to the extent that there's any common denominator in, in the people that that resonate to it it is it is that fact that there 's something about that notion about this grand conspiracy where people are taking advantage of us where they they resonate to it they emotionally connect and I think you know that's a big part um to to, to kind of highlight that when there's, when they spread this misinformation it's almost always in an emotional context you know it 's either child pornography um, is going on or um, the last one I heard is spike proteins from the vaccine that could get into a mother's milk and infect a Mm. child. And so your children are at danger. There's always this thing that, you know, most people would say, Oh my God, if that's true, that's really scary. And, and so once they do that, they kind of shut down your frontal lobes. You have trouble thinking rationally once your emotions have been provoked. Um, and, And that's what they kind of do in this messaging. And so, the people who, who kind of follow that line, they just, they resonate with that messaging. They, somehow it seems right to them that, that this is going on. Um, and they just become completely blind to the notion, you know, everything now is a result of this conspiracy. They've got a way of explaining away any data or any argument that the rest of us may, may throw to them. Uh, and that's what makes it so challenging. You know, I, I'm going to come clean. I've got a family member who's, who's there. And yeah. we just cannot have discussions. And, and the other, you know, negative part of this is it's not just we have a different of, difference of opinion on this point. It, it, it becomes a cause for a lot of these people. It becomes a defining moment in their lives where, damn it, they're going to stand up for this thing and they're going to tell everybody. Uh, and, and therefore, you know, the relationship becomes really difficult because you can't even just agree to disagree and not and not talk about it. It's like, no, no, that is their life right now, and that's all they talk about, and it becomes very, very difficult.
0: Talk a little bit about that, Steve, because obviously there's a personal anecdote of yours, of, you know, family member, same thing, one believes one thing, one believes another thing. Anecdotally, I've got, uh, you know, a story of... Uh, an acquaintance who had an old friend. Man, they went to uh, to university together. Uh, they're now both retired, and one is pro, one is is against. And you know, it's literally divided this friendship that's been yeah. around forever. I can't yeah. believe
4: it. I, I, you know, I've been asked all through this pandemic, will there be these negative consequences? A sort of shadow of the pandemic. And largely, I feel at at the level of the pandemic itself, I'm not sure there isn't. There may be, in fact, a a positive. Once we all conquer this and come out of this together, we may have a a sense of unity and value that's actually an enhancement. But the negative, and, and certainly it'll be the truth for me, is, you know, given some of the interactions that have happened because of our disagreements, I I don't know how long it will be before I will ever have the same relationship um, with this family member that I did previously. Um, And and I think that's happening a lot. It's happening very quietly, but I think there's a lot of us who have these deep, deep divisions with friends and family that where we think, you know, this is this is going to hurt for a long, long time. And and until such a time as this, hopefully, you know, I I have hope for the sort of Y2K phenomenon that, you know, if enough time passes yeah. and nothing blows up and zombies don't hit the earth and whatever else they think is going to happen doesn't happen, you know, will it just quietly fade away and no one will talk about it anymore? You know, barring that, the longer they're dug in and the longer they believe Armageddon is coming in this way, um, I, I don't see any, any, any cure for that. So for me, it's been the worst part of the pandemic. Uh, absolutely.
0: Uh, Early on in this, and man, we've been talking about this for like a year and a half now. Um, um, at the beginning we, we chatted about how this brought everybody together, even yep. the pol- politicians. It didn't matter what the political stripe. Everybody was rowing in the same direction, it seemed, uh, yep. during the first half of this. And prior to the pandemic, we're in a pretty divisive world. I mean, look at the yep. United States and how divisive their politics is. I, th- I think we're moving in the same direction uh, slowly behind them. And there was thought that, you know, after you go through something like this and you can't go through something for, for this length of time and not come out a different different person in some way that yeah. this might make people more empathetic might bring them more together might make them realize what is really important in life not right. this frivolous fluff that we've had to eliminate over the, the this pandemic so coming out the other end of this all right we're gonna see that empathy steve or is that gone out the window now that the vaccine is here yeah
4: well you you know what one of the things i've been been saying about that is i I hope we do um there is a a force against that that i've been calling the great snapback and and all i mean by that is you know first of all by our very nature we're highly highly social creatures it's just literally in our dna um to be highly interactive but also we've had all these habits of how we interacted with each other prior to the pandemic and habits are powerful beasts and we've been holding them back for a year and a half But the moment we start to feel like, okay, we don't have to hold back, we can go into a sporting event or whatever and feel comfortable beside, you know, shoulder to shoulder with people and and doing everything we did. I think our natural habit is going to be just that warm blanket of the past behavior will just envelop us and we'll love it. Uh, And if we don't, if we don't consciously try to shift things, my, my notion is in a month or two from now, assuming everything's keeps going the same good direction. We will most likely be the person we were before the pandemic. If we don't want to be that person, if there are changes that if there are things we've learned, I think now is the time to really reflect on that and the time to kind of consciously create some new habits, which is, which is how you do it. You know, the first few times, if you want to behave in a different way, you have to kind of consciously guide yourself. But if you can do that enough times, then eventually that starts to become the new habit and i think you know i've been saying this to corporations i've been saying this to educational institutions you know now is the time to say what was frivolous garbage and and what do we want to jettison and what have we learned during all this that we want to add and let's re-envision who we want to be post-pandemic and make sure we work hard to make that happen because if we don't we will slide back to our previous way of being which you know for some people might be perfectly fine but in some cases we have an opportunity here to kind of reshape
0: it's fascinating how when you stop the world or stop the merry-go-round for a year and a half, how it changes. I mean, the first few months, I think most, most people thought they could eat and drink their way out of this. Yeah. Uh, but then <laughs> when you get to the year and the year and a half, Mark, it's like, holy smokes, this yeah. is this is adjusting uh, who we are. Um, will it make us reevaluate our priorities? You know, we saw this with technology. We knew we could do this long ago, but we didn't want to. We wanted to drive to work. We wanted to do that. It took yep. a lot to make that change. It took a, a event, a world event, to make that change. Uh, yep. Is this going to change our priority? Like, to heck with it. I don't want to wear pants ever again. I don't know. You know, <laughs> like, will, will some of this stuff stick?
4: I, I sure hope so. I, I, I really do. I think there are things we, we should be learning through all this. I mean, one of the things that, that I've talked about, for example, is, for me, it was a great time to talk about mental health and especially anxiety uh because sometimes when we talk yeah. about it you know it's like we're talking about the, those other people but during the pandemic it was every darned one of us uh we, yeah you know, everybody we nows that. know
0: what everybody now knows what anxiety's all about don't yeah. they yeah and so what a great time to kind of
4: learn about it as a biological process and understand that it's not mystical it's not weird it's it's a normal reaction to an abnormal situation um and and yeah so now we leave with hopefully a more open minded better notion of of um mental illness and how it can occur but I think in general, you know, and especially when it comes to our relationships, uh, I hope the biggest thing we learned is that all relationships are not created equal. These shallow Facebook, social media kinds of things are just that just shallow ways of sort of seeming like we have these friends. But the people that we really reached out to during this pandemic the people we relied on to keep us sane, you know, that's exactly what those people do. And and I hope we have a, a deeper appreciation for that, uh, for family, for, you know, being able to just hang around our grandkids and, and the, the simple, you know, pleasures that kinda come from that on both sides. I, I really hope we do optimize our life a little bit more, a little less of this crazy work and a little more of the of the good stuff of life, which is, you know, what we haven't had for a year and a
5: half.
0: How long uh, do you think this will affect us? I mean, many have talked about the kids. I mean, I I remember, uh, you know, our kids are both in high school now. But uh, when this started, my boy was finishing his last year of elementary school. Uh, I, I remember walking to school the first day when we were allowed to. Uh, or no, I'm sorry, uh, walking uh, in past years and, and all the parents and the kids gathering and then doing it during COVID and, you know, all these kindergarten kids, everybody's got a mask on. I mean, they yeah. know no other life. How yeah. do you think this will affect the kids? And, you know, especially in a younger age, a year is a big chunk of your of your life yeah. at that point. How do you think it's going to affect the kids moving forward?
4: So, so I always think of uh, my, my oldest granddaughter partway through the pandemic, uh, looked at us at some point and said, uh, COVID is ruining my life. super dramatic way and we all thought it was quite funny but you know quite honestly it it was a real challenge for a lot of kids to go through Um, you know with the birthday parties being what they were and everything but I actually my prediction is This will not be a bad thing for the vast majority of us. It will be something again that we've all had to endure together and they've watched us as adults make sacrifices and, and be willing to, you know, live a life that is not how we want to live, but because it's the right way to be during this time. Mm. Um, and, and, and plus families, you know, whether they like it or not have been a lot closer than they usually would be during these, this young period of, of a lot of our children's lives. And so I think there, there may be a lot of positives that come out. There, there's one caveat I always want to, to add. You know, I think for most of us, we're going to go to a, a, a better-feeling world now. Let's not talk climate change, because that's a shadow <laughs> over top of everything else. But the, the real distinction to keep in mind is there are some people for whom this was a, a, a real existential threat. They really felt true and honest fear, um, regarding the virus, either fear for their own life or fear for bringing this virus back to somebody they love. And when you feel that true, true fear, that hits your, your limbic system, the most primitive part of your brain. And that's the kind that leads, that's the place where psychological scars are left, where things like post-traumatic stress disorder or variants of it you know could could be out there for some people. So for most of us I think we will reintegrate quickly and our kids too will they'll reintegrate and before we know it it'll be like the pandemic never happened. Um but I think there will be a few people that that are going to have a really difficult time, you know, feeling safe again uh, after after feeling true and utter fear during this and and those people will probably really need to seek out a little bit of support and help uh, of a clinical sort.
0: Steve Jordan's with us, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, talking about coming out of a global pandemic. Steve, fascinating discussion. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show Podcast on 900 CHML. All right, lots to talk about in regard to uh, Canada's military. A couple of, uh, two or three major stories uh, going on. Uh, Major General Danny Fortin, remember he was in charge of Canada's uh, vaccine rollout and then uh, very quickly uh, removed due to allegations of past uh, misconduct. Uh, There's also issues about the defense minister and a position created for a friend of his in Vancouver, and also uh, in regard to Afghan interpreters who helped us uh, when troops were there, uh, and of course in Afghanistan, Uh, now that, uh, especially with the U.S. pulling out, uh, a lot of these people's lives are in danger, and there has been a mad push on for the last little while to uh, at least do what we can to uh, bring these people to Canada, and uh, at least uh, repay for uh, all that they have done for the Canadian Canadian military over the years let's bring in christian leprac professor at both the royal military college of canada and queen's university and a fellow at the mcdonald laurier institute and with the end is with us now christian thank you for the time i hope you're doing well good afternoon scott i am indeed let's start with major general danny Fortan. um where are the allegations against him now everything that took him down where where is that case at this point do we know
5: well, this case is going to come up in uh, Quebec Provincial Court at some point in the fall, presumably um, if there are, um, if there are going to be charges laid but uh, I mean the implications for somebody who has served um, with dignity and uh, and respect and an impeccable record for uh, the better part of thirty years is likely going to mean that um, either he'd get a suspended sentence or that the court is likely to dismiss. Uh, the case altogether, um, based on the premise that, uh, that there's no other, um, issues with, uh, with, with his behavior during the time that he served. And I think that's what he's capitalizing on, that the, um, the court would see this as a, um, if, if there, if there are grounds even to pursue this through the courts, then the courts would see this, um, in a worst case scenario as a very minor, um, infraction and that he, has to pay a disproportionate price in terms of his career, his reputation, his lost income. Um, and so I think the, the, what this is hearkening at is that in the public's mind, all these cases of misconduct are sort of one big, broad brushstroke. And I think yeah. what we get here is these are actually highly nuanced sort of situations of people who've potentially engaged in obstruction of justice or breach of trust potentially even versus people who made perhaps a poor choice as a teenager uh, where to be certain there is a victim uh one or more victims uh on the other end but at the same time that you know lots of people make uh, make poor choices at one point or another uh, as a teenager and that uh that the, the the consequences here um do not fit the um any any potential infraction or crime that might have been committed
0: so have charges been laid at this point christian
5: no so the matter has simply been um uh, been handed over to my understanding to the uh, uh, prosecution service in Quebec because until 1998 these types of charges uh, could not be pursued by the military themselves they were pursued at the provincial level and since so the matter predates 1998 and this is a historical charge it is being pursued by the Quebec prosecutors office so we'll even have to see whether the provincial authorities um believe that there is grounds for um uh, for, for for pursuit so i think the uh, the premise in our legal system is of course the that uh, you're presumed innocent until proven guilty and i think the point that uh, Mir jean Fortin is making that he was judged guilty um by the government before uh, he ever even had a chance to make his case or have his day in court now generals do serve at pleasure and so the government can uh can uh, on those grounds as a crown prerogative um dismiss individuals they also get um a certain amount of um considerable pay and pension benefits uh, for that risk um but there's also the question here of whether it was within the government's scope uh, to reach down as far as a two-star general and have that individual dismissed, or whether that constitutes uh, interference in operations and beyond the scope and purview of the government of the day. And I think uh, Major General Fratern is determined to test that in the courts.
0: So what does this mean for him? How does this affect his future, even if it, if it doesn't materialize?
5: Well, so a lot of retired generals end up serving, for instance, on boards. If you think back to the 1990s, John de Chastellane, for instance, who ended up working for, uh, for Boeing as a, as a senior VP. Uh, so often people retire and they, I mean, they retire reasonably early in many cases because they tend to join relatively young. And so they retire in their, um, in their fifties. Um, and then often have an opportunity perhaps to take a government appointment somewhere else, a governing council appointment uh, to lead, for instance, another agency as deputy minister, for instance, um, as Walt nath did did uh, with Veterans Affairs after he he retired. And so I think what Major-General Fortin is saying is that all those avenues and opportunities are now foreclosed to him because of the reputational damage that has been done um, to somebody who served impeccably in uniform and whose transgressions uh, predate his commissioning as an officer uh, in the Canadian Armed Forces. And he's clearly determined to pursue uh, remedy uh, through the courts. But I think this is not so much about the financial remedy. It is about... Uh, whether the government is being um, is being appropriate and fair within the powers that it has at its disposal uh, in the way it deals with individuals and whether the government is perhaps overzealous in risk managing given that it's in a minority situation and coming up to an election in order to remove anything and anyone that could possibly pose a political risk and that this really was fundamentally um, not a procedurally fair decision but I think from a general for chance perspective uh, perhaps a political decision and a politicized decision um, outside of the, of, of, uh, of the scope of, uh, of government. And so I think trying to rein in and in some ways protect um, some of his colleagues and some of the other members who are serving by making sort of the point that there, there must be limits or there, there need to be limits on uh, how government acts, how quickly government acts, and on what sort of evidence government um, uh, can act.
0: The uh, to change uh, gears here, uh, the Globe and Mail reporting that the defense minister Sejan told the military to create a position eventually filled by a reserve officer from his old unit who had been ordered suspended from the Vancouver police for an uh, inappropriate relationship with a subordinate. Uh, this according to newly released uh, briefing notes, your thought on this story adding to the fire.
5: Yeah, I think this is uh, uh, it's it's causing perhaps a little bit of bewilderment. I think among many serving members, so uh, the audience needs to understand that the minister already has uh, four military personnel, lieutenant colonels, so so a reasonably uh, important rank, uh, who work directly for uh, for the minister. And so the minister could have, for instance, just sent one of those to Vancouver. Uh, The minister, like all members of parliament, spends considerable time in his home riding, and his home riding is a considerable distance, of course, from Ottawa. But, of course, previous ministers have, have been a considerable distance from Ottawa and have not felt it necessary to create a local position on the ground. So... For instance, the department could have redeployed um, one of those positions to Vancouver, but instead um, it was decided that a a, a reservist would effectively be – that this position would be created, uh, would be effectively a new position, first part-time and then full-time, and the reservist would be contracted for that position. And then as it so happens, among all the reservists that might be available to apply for that position in Vancouver – uh, somebody with direct uh, links to the minister uh, ends up being selected to fill that position. And so it looks like they're, uh, you know, so this is what we expect to see when ministers hire political staff. They want to have people who they trust and who they believe in in positions. But of course, this remains a civil service position. Um, and so, you know, in in, in some ways, um, it shows that as with any government, if the minister wants something, that's what the minister gets. But um, inherently, um, it's also the question and, and and the opportunity to have this as a public debate uh, whether the appro- appropriate processes were followed in the creation of a public service position here um, and the contract that was handed out, uh, because ultimately these are public funds, these are taxpayer funds, um, and there are processes in place for creating these. And I think it's a bit, little bit puzzling uh, to civil servants and perhaps to former ministers um, as to um whether the merits of the savings of not having military staff having to travel with the minister um outweighed the benefits um of uh, creating this particular position um um uh, locally and i guess this is the opportunity for canadians to uh, to decide in a democracy um uh, as to whether the minister here um acted in um, um in in the best overall interests in representing canada as the minister of national defence In terms of the considerable distance that he has to travel and to realize the many duties that he has as a minister, uh, as a member of cabinet, um, and as a member of parliament.
0: Uh, Obviously, the defense minister has had a a rough ride of late. Is this another scar for him, or is this just low hanging fruit for the opposition? Uh,
5: I think the minister is, uh, the prime minister has made it clear repeatedly that the minister continues to have and enjoy his confidence. Um, uh, Given the number of representatives in cabinet that basically come from the Laurentian elites, that is to say the uh, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal sort of corridor, and given the relatively high profile that the minister has, his popularity within his riding and his fundraising record within the party, uh, I think the minister is pretty safe in the saddle in which he sits. Uh, But uh, uh, the uh, I think it points to... Uh, the challenges that perhaps this government has faced in making sure that um, when it intends to award public money um, and to, uh, to, to have civil servants supported it, uh, in its business, uh, that the appropriate processes and procedures uh, are followed and that those are effectively uh, impartial and fair uh, for anyone who in both the creation of these positions or awarding of contracts and the people who might be able to compete for them.
0: All right. uh, Lots of uh, chatter in the news recently in regard to the interpreters that helped us uh, in Afghanistan that helped the the, uh, Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, we, we've seen, uh, help to get them out from the United States, those that, uh, rode alongside, uh, with them. Uh, it seems that even, uh, soldiers themselves have gone beyond to, to help some of these, uh, interpreters. Canada criticized not, uh, for doing so more earlier. Uh, that being said, have made an announcement today in regard to the Afghan interpreters. What can you tell us about this story?
5: Yeah, I think this is a tragic story. Um, the uh, We're not the only country that's struggling with this. Germany is struggling with it. Australia is struggling with it. Uh, and it raises the, lo- the broader question about what sort of expectations local populations can and should have when they support a mission. Is this a purely transactional relationship? You provide certain skill sets and we'll provide you a certain amount of pay in return. Um, or is there a broader expectation that... Um, uh, that collaboration could very much put my life and my family's life at risk. Um and so that uh, people then also expect that once the mission ends, they might have an opportunity to, um, uh, to, to, uh, to be accommodated uh, by Canada or other countries accordingly. And so different countries handle this differently. The Americans have long held out the carrot of, uh, uh of a visa to the United States, not in all cases. Uh, but the broader challenge that it represents, of course, is so how do we strike this balance between a transactional relationship and the broader obligations, uh, that we have and the expectations by locals? And it's, I think there's, there's the, the tragedy and the ethical issues around this particular debate, but there's the much broader, I think, issue about what are the consequences if we go abroad somewhere again, we contract for particular services with the local population, um, and it turns out that nobody wants to work for us because, uh, the Afghan issue is now so widely um, mediatized um, that populations elsewhere in the world would say, like, well, you know, if all I'm getting out of it is a little bit of money, but in the yeah. end, I'm going to have to lose my life or my family is going to be endangered. It might not be worth, my, worth it to me. So, how do we optimize skill sets uh, that we're going to need on the ground um, while at the same time being prudent with um, our taxpayer money? Um, and, uh, and our immigration policy and, and who and when we bring people into the country and I think it means that we're going to need to have much greater foresight and it shows that this is just one more element of the Afghan file where uh, governments of both stripes I think had very little foresight in terms of what they got themselves into and what the broader consequences of that mission and reverberations continue to be.
0: Is Canada's position on this changing? What, what about the future moving forward and these interpreters that are still there?
5: Yeah, I mean it's changing, but the challenge is, of course, it's changing as a result of political pressure. It's not changing because we actually developed a cohesive policy, or a cohesive policy or strategy as to how we go forward when we um, solicit the support. Uh, of local populations in fulfilling the mission that the Kenya armed forces have been tasked with, and so it's very much sort of a tactical response, I think, in a for a minority government in an election environment, um, and I think what hopefully will uh, will follow is a much more strategic debate about uh, the uh, not just. Transactional obligations, but ethical and moral obligations that the Kenya Armed Forces in Canada has towards individuals, uh, who, um, very well may be putting their lives at risk by the support that they provide and how we can ensure, um, that we can learn from this episode and we're not going to have this type of debate. Uh, again, because of course, many of the areas in the world where we are active uh, with large missions or with small deployments, um, uh, these are very difficult places to live. And uh, uh, this issue is going to come up again about people who will raise the prospect of, uh, of serious risk to their life um, uh, if they're not being accommodated by Canada. So I think um, there's a much broader debate to be had here that has yet to be had.
0: Where does all of this leave Afghanistan? Is this going to become another problem in the future?
5: My view on Afghanistan is not the one commonly held by Canadians or in Ottawa. My view is that this mission had one singular goal, and that goal was to prevent Afghanistan from becoming a safe harbor for terrorists. That goal was achieved within the first year of the mission. We've not had a major international terrorist attack staged out of Afghanistan since that deployment, and so I think what we ended up with is a mission that became subject to all sorts of aspirations by people who wanted to make Afghanistan a better place, or who wanted to make Afghanistan more stable, and that then I think has led to a lot of disappointment, including recently in terms of the retaking, of course, of Pandray districts, all of which was completely and entirely predictable within the first year of the mission. And so we need to ask ourselves next time we get ourselves into these sorts of quagmires, uh, what exactly is the mission? Let's make sure we stick to the mission and let's not give in to the mission creep. And I think Afghanistan is a mission that is broadly defined by a massive mission creep uh, that then made sure, ensured that there was going to be broad-based disappointment uh, with the results in the end instead of sticking to the one goal that we had for signing up to the mission to begin with.
0: Fascinating. Christian Leprec with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald laurier Institute. Thanks for the conversation, Christian. Much appreciated. Be well. Have a great weekend.
5: Always a pleasure. Thank you, Scott, and a lovely weekend to you and the listeners.